In his now American classic, The Souls of Black Folk, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was one of the foremost Black intellectuals of the late 19th and 20th centuries, wrote that the problem of the 20th century was the problem of the color line. Or, to be more specific, he said that navigating relations between the darker and lighter races of men in Asia and Africa, in America and the islands of the sea, would occupy much time and thought. Looking at the ongoing challenges that we face with issues of race and racism, one wonders if Du Bois's view of the 21st century would be any different. While many might be inclined to think that these are uniquely American problems, Recent reports about racial and social unrest in Europe reveals that they are not. As reported in the New York Times earlier this year, France, a nation that bills itself as committed to the universalist idea of the brotherhood and equality of all, has been significantly convulsed by racial protests in recent months. Those protests, which grew out of the global reaction to the tragic murder of George Floyd last year, have prompted many French politicians and intellectuals to voice concerns about what they see as a growing influence of woke and anti-racist activism in France. According to French President Emmanuel Macron, the threat of certain social science theories entirely imported from the United States is fueling secessionism and gnawing at national unity in France. Is this true? Or is it that French intellectuals and politicians are living in a state of denial, especially when it comes to issues of race and the problem of systemic racism in France? Marcus and I will pose these and other questions to our guest and colleague, Dr. Oliver Globe, on today's show. Oliver, who has joined us before, is a native of France and has a unique perspective on that country and its fraught history around the issues of race and colonialism. We look forward to having you with us today. Welcome to another episode of the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. And again, we're glad to have you all join us again today. We're so glad and grateful for all of the members of the audience. Marcus, I, you know, I just have to take a moment here at the very beginning of the show just to acknowledge, you know, the support that we're getting from so many members of the audience. We we uh, are kind of slow sometimes in responding to people and, and your requests for um, for our comments or, you know, ideas that you all may have. But trust me, Marcus and I are, are trying our best to get to that, aren't we, brother? Yeah, we are. And I, I, I really do continue to be um, just, just astonished and, and also encouraged by the not not only the the regularity with which you know we're getting feedback on the show, but also uh, the sort of the the reflective nature of the feedback that we get. Mm-hmm. It really tells me that that our listeners, uh, many of our listeners, are not just listening to the show passively, but they're listening actively, um, and they're wrestling with right the 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 the, the conversations that that we um, um are exploring on the show. So that to me is a is a very positive sign. 
It is. It's like, you know, Marcus, I feel that each time we get together, we're jumping in the deep end, you know, mm-hmm. once again into the pool of knowledge, just kind of exploring different topics, different ideas. And it is so good to hear the feedback from you all about how that is, as Marcus said, uh, causing you all to be reflective. We got one message from one listener who said, you know, thank you for making for making me think which um, Marcus really is the purpose of the show. And and I'm glad that we seem to be introducing new topics in a way or maybe even old topics in a way that people hadn't thought about them before. And I I think that even with the conversations that we've recently had on reparations, you know, we still, we continue to get feedback on that live version of the show that we did. And then there's a shortened version that aired here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. um, So you can get that podcast to listen to it. But I continue to get feedback from people because Marcus, this conversation on reparations is going to be an ongoing conversation for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think so. And I would just say, I appreciate the the listener writing in to us um, and saying that she uh, appreciates the show, giving her an opportunity to think, because I think, um, I don't think I know that, uh, unfortunately, we live in a society that increasingly, uh, at least North America, that is, that increasingly uh, encourages uh, kind of reactive Mm -hmm. action (laughs) rather than um, uh, action preceded by uh, serious reflection. So, Mm -hmm. So, so any opportunity <laughs> that I have to encourage people to pause and think before acting, um, I'm, I'm happy Absolutely. to take full advantage of. So Absolutely. I appreciate that comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Marcus, I, I think here, you know, the last show that we did with uh, which was kind of a reflection show, but a different model of the reflection show that we did on the conversation, the larger conversations around reparations. And we did that show because we've been working in partnership with the William Friday Fellowship at a while Leadership Initiative, which is the umbrella organization for uh, the William Friday uh, Fellowship for Human Relations. And those have been ongoing conversations. You and I pointed out in that last show that one of the things we deeply appreciate about the work with the Friday Fellows is that it's giving us an opportunity to speak to people throughout the state of North Carolina, across the state of North Carolina, not just here locally, but it gives us a glimpse of what is going on in communities across the state. And I thought it was an interesting show. I mean, we had Ryan Emanuel, Dr. Ryan Emanuel, who is a member of the Lumbee tribe. And to hear his perspective on issues related to reparations, I thought was very instructive, as it was with Angie McEver, who is right here in the local community, but a member of the, the current class of fellows and her perspective. And, you know, one of the things that struck me about her, her comments, Marcus, and, and, and you can respond here, was how she said, OK, we need to be thinking about this whole issue of reparations in a very personal way. We need to think about it, not just as a collective, but how can we think about it in a very personal way? And it reminded me of of King Prater. And it seems that King Prater, who was on that live show with us, was also is also attempting to think about this in a very personal way. Yeah. And and I think her point, um, I think Angie's Angie's point, um, it really issues a kind of charge uh, directly, I think, to 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 the white American community specifically, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, to to not um, to not um, fall back on the comfortable move of thinking about rep, you know reparations as something uh, extrinsic to 
um, to me as something out there, as an issue out there that doesn't directly impact me, um, as something out there that the government will resolve um, either on, on the local, state, or federal level. Uh, no, no, Angie really was, was saying that, you know, this is something that, um, that white America needs to personalize, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. and think of as an issue that, um, that, that, uh, that forms a, a significant uh, part of their life, right? Mm-hmm. Their social life, their personal life, um, etc. Um, in the United States, and so, uh, and and I think perhaps in a, in a less direct way, uh, King Prater's uh, comments on the on the live show on reparations um, issued a similar kind of charge to White mm-hmm. America, right? To right. to really begin to engage this question of reparations um, in a personalized way. Um, it remains to be seen <laughs> how effective that, that, that charge will be. But I think it is, is an important, I think that it is, that, that, that is an important charge to make, especially right now. Right. And Marcus, I can't help but think about the framing questions that you and I have been using have kind of be reiterating in so many of the the most recent shows about who are we and who do we want to be. And I think that this conversation around reparations and especially as we move towards 2026, which you and I both have referenced, which will be the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the beginning of the American Revolution, that this gives us an opportunity to kind of revisit those questions of who are we? and who do we wish to be? And I think that the conversation around reparations invites maybe an engagement with those two questions and and thinking about the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution. Well, look, here we are here again today. And the conversation, I guess it relates to the conversations that uh, we've had in the most recent shows around reparations. But you and I have been thinking about, well, it does, because this, this is really about the issue of race, right? But we, sometimes we can be so I guess myopic in our in the way that we think about this, and we only think about it as it relates to us here at home, or here in the United States. But what, what what's going on around the issues of race globally? And you and I in our private conversations have been talking about that a bit. And and for one, it was prompted by an article that appeared in the New York Times back in February, um, which was talking about the issue of race and especially from the perspective of France. And it seems that there is a bit of angst in the in the country, in the, in the nation of France, about some of the conversations that we're having here in the United States around race. And so you and I have been privately talking about that and wanted to come back to, okay, let's let's engage this uh, this topic in a more globalized perspective, which we've done before in a past show with Dr. Oliver Globe, who've already said is going to be joining us here today. But this gives us an, a chance to kind of revisit that conversation. Yeah, it does. And to me, the case of, of France is, is ironic, right? Uh, right, in a sense, uh, because you know, here we have a European nation um, with, with a history of colonization that dates back to at least the 18th century, right? So the 1700s. Um, it also um, imagines itself to be um, really an enlightenment nation. And we know that the idea of race, right, um, really begins to appear um, in intellectual circles during the enlightenment, right? Many of the mm-hmm. Um, formative thinkers of the Enlightenment were French thinkers. So to me, I, it's very ironic that um, that France finds itself right now in a position where, um, uh, at least at the national level, 
it, it cannot confront <laughs> right, uh, the role that race played um, and continues to play in this colonial history. And so right. I, I think it's I think it's entirely apropos. Right. Um, as we sort of pivot, at least on this show, uh, to the question of race um, on a from a global perspective mm-hmm. uh, to the to the specific case of France. Right. And I think and for those of you in the audience who are curious about what article Marcus and I are kind of referencing here that was in the New York Times back in February, uh, the title of that article was actually Will American Ideas Tear France Apart? Some of its leaders think so. And so if anyone's paying attention, there are a lot of comments that are being made, even by the French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, who is talking about this as well, about American ideas and America's woke culture. We hear that term a lot. You and I have not really used that term here on the show, but, you know, maybe, you know, at some point that will be a conversation that's to come back to. But Marcus, a lot of this has been prompted, as you and I both know, by the uh, by the murder of George Floyd last year. Right. So we not only saw protests here in the United States, but we saw major protests globally. And that begs the question, you know, what's going on in these other nations, right? Mm. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. And, I, you know, I, this this concern in France about the impact of uh, of um, what we might call um, woke um, leftism uh, coming from uh, the United States to me is, is interesting when, when you consider the fact, and I'm sure that we, I know that we'll get more into this when we uh, bring Professor Globe in. But but when you consider, for example, um, Francis, the tro- atrocities committed by France in places like Algeria, mm-hmm. right, uh, Madagascar, for example, um, the last three French prime ministers, right, so that would be Emmanuel Macron, that would be um, Francois Hollande, and also uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, mm-hmm. have refused to offer public apologies, right, specifically for the atrocities in um, in uh, in Algeria, so mm-hmm. to me it, it's uh it's 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 interesting to sort of blame what's happening in France now on uh, American woke culture when it seems to me that this kind of um th- th- this 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 um this sentiment uh, in France uh, uh, um, this th- this th- this sentiment involving um, a disinterest in discussing race and, and a disinterest in confronting France's colonial history seems to predate American woke, woke culture, in my opinion. Um, yeah, yeah. So it seems so it seems that it seems that you know uh, American woke culture has become a kind of convenient um, scapegoat. <laughs> Yeah, right. the whipping uh, to, to yeah. explain what's happening right, <laughs> right. now in, in France right. as far as the, the upheaval around um, around race. Right. And so, Marcus, I, as you and I prepped for this show and I thought about what is going on globally and in this case, particularly in France and what we're reading, it could not it, I could not help but but think about W.E.B. Du Bois, right? And the souls of black folks and what he said in 1903 when that book was published. And in the introduction of that book, he said that the problem of the 20th century would be the problem of the color line. So it makes me wonder, what would he say today? I I like to think that in in the souls of black folk, uh, a book, let me just say here that one of our favorite historians, Dr. David Blight says that every American should read the souls of black folks. He said, if you, I've I've seen I have seen him tell Yale students that if they have not read this text before they graduate from Yale, then they do not deserve to have a degree from Yale. <laughs> so I kind of agree. It is one of the books that is in the American canon that should be read. I like to think that maybe Du Bois was hopeful about where 
uh, about where we might be by the time the 21st century dawned. But it seems to me, Marcus, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. It seems to me that the problem of the 21st century is still the problem of the color line. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't I, I really don't think that Du Bois, I, I would I would suggest speculative, speculatively that um that boys likely that Du Bois likely did not expect this color line issue to be resolved at any point um in the future. Uh as I read Du Bois, um it, it, it wasn't just that um the color line was considered to be the preeminent problem of the 20th century. Uh, I think we can sort of read into Du Bois' du Bois's analysis the implication that that the color line really, um, or, or 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 we could say race or colorism, right? Uh, really, uh, in many ways, was and is the definitive problem of modernity itself, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know how you how you resolve um, something that 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 is so so we say embedded or endemic. In modernity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, as as the kind of contemporary environment that we that we that we live and breathe every day. So uh, I think the language that Du Bois has given to this problem helps us talk about it, you know, in a in a clearer, more precise way. But as far as resolving this whole question of of the color line or race or racism, um, I, I, I highly doubt that, that Du Bois, you know, would have expected a resolution by this point, especially given that by the end of Du Bois' career, Du Bois says, you know what, to hell with the U.S. I'm expatriating to West Africa. Right. I'm going to live right. out my, my days uh, here. This is after having spent his entire life, right, working on the race issue in the United States. You're listening to The Waters and Harvey Show on the Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back after a short break. Stay with us. You're listening to The Waters and Harvey Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're, going to, we're discussing the global impact of Black Lives Matter, woke culture, and racial justice protests in the United States the impact of those globally. Our guest today is Dr. Oliver Globe. Oliver is an associate professor of French and Francophone studies at UNC Asheville, a wonderful colleague. And Marcus, I'm just glad to go ahead and just invite Oliver into this conversation now. Um, He's someone that many of our listeners will probably uh, be familiar with because he was on the show with us back in 2014. And it seems, seems, uh, well, 2017, four years ago. And it seems um, amazing to me that actually four years has passed since we've had Oliver back, but I think a lot has been going on with him. But Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank thank you for taking time to kind of join us in this conversation today. We look forward to uh, just a a rich discussion. Oh, well, I'm glad to be back and thanks for having me. So so let's just get started. I mean, a lot has transpired since the last time we talked with you. One thing uh, in particular that we want to congratulate you on is on the publication, I think this of your first book, right, with the University of uh, of Oxford Press, a book entitled Albert Camus, um, a very short introduction. And so, Oliver, congratulations on the publication of this book. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
fact, I think we'd like to just start the conversation with talking about the book briefly here, because I think we're going to find as the conversation goes along that it connects very well with the conversation we're we're having. So what can you tell us about this book? Um, And can you uh, it was published, I think, in 2020. But what can you tell us about this work? Well, as the title of the collection suggests, it's, it's meant to be an introduction to Albert Camus, who is perhaps the, the most widely read French writer in the English language. He's a, he's a novelist, a playwright, a, a philosopher, even though he didn't call himself that. And it's an introduction to his life and works. Uh, it's also an analysis of the cultural phenomenon that Camus has become, and also of his contradictions. Uh, he was both the son of the French Republic in the sense that he benefited from free schooling. His father uh, was killed during World War I. He grew up in a very poor background. And thanks to this free education uh, afforded by the French state, I mean, this, he ended up getting the Nobel Prize of Literature. Um, this is an amazing feel-good story. And uh, he, was, um, he saw himself on the side of disenfranchised, oppressed people. Uh, and in some ways he was, but at the same time, he was fervently attached to France's colonial presence mm. in the area. Mm. Oh, almost 150 years of occupation uh, that we'll talk about later. And so Camus was both for emancipation and ultimately a supporter of, of colonialism. So against emancipation. Um, and, and, and I think, and in, in, so he was a supporter of colonialism in, in this so there's an intractable, unresolvable contradiction in Camus himself that, in my view, and I try to explain this in the book, powers his works. Powers is, is that contradiction is the matrix for his works and makes him a fascinating culture, a uh, fascinating figure. Now, this unnamed contradiction and often unknowledged, unacknowledged contradiction um, that, you know, where Camus is between uh, metropolitan colony is, in fact, I think, the same contradiction that pervades France today in all sorts of ways. So, you know, Marcus, before you jump in here, I'd just like to ask Oliver, I mean, for some who might think, well, why are we talking about uh, a French philosopher here? But he he is very popular um, internationally, right? So, I mean, there are a lot of Americans who, uh, from George W. Bush himself, you know, who you write about, who is someone here in this country who has referenced Camus. And so um, what what is it with this global popularity of, of this figure? Well, that's a very good question. In a way, if you'd like, he is, he, he is the incarnation of the fiction of a colonialism with a human, humanist face. With a human, you know, sort of like, well, yes, colonialism with a human face, as it were. Uh, this idea that you can be both a humanist, both for enlightenment, and at the same time for colonialism, that there can be a generous colonialism. And that is extremely appealing for leaders in Europe and the United States, especially like George Bush, when they're about to invade Iraq for a second time in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, and this is such a fascinating point, Oliver. And there's, I wanted to, I wanted to um, query you a little bit about, about the complexity, a little bit more about the complexity in Camus that you just sort of ta- uh, discussed. I'm reminded of, of a statement, a very brief uh, statement that Camus made, which you wrote about in an article you published with the Jacobin uh, not too long ago, where a student um, asked Camus about justice. 
And Kim Yu's response was, um, I, would, I would choose my mother before justice, <laughs> right? So this to me just kind of speaks to uh, the, the, kind of, the, the kind of internal contradiction um, in Kim Yu uh, with respect to um, France's colonial uh, history and legacy um, and also his sort of uh, post-colonial or so we say anti-colonial uh, inclinations in some ways. So, so I'm curious to hear uh, a little bit more from you, Oliver, about what you think is the source of that contradiction, right? I mean, is it is it is it um, just a function of his of of Camus being a Frenchman, right? Um, and also influenced by sort of the the emergence of of anti-colonial movements, or is just something else at work there? Do you think? Well, it's a function first, I think, of the fact that he grew up in French Algeria, that he is, for all intents and purposes, a settler colonialist. So his home was Algeria. And when he says, and there are disputes about the exact quote, that he would choose his mother as opposed, uh, as opposed to justice, it's also an admission. He is admitting that the very life of his mother in Algeria is premised on injustice. And so it's also a confession, even though it was not interpreted as such. But Camus was torn because he was on the side of, of emancipation of public schooling for all, of free healthcare, uh, of which he benefited from. But at the same time, he was very well aware that although he had a very poor childhood, it would have been much worse if he were if he had been an Arab, and he says that. Um, so the source of this contradiction it is the contradiction of France itself, the lofty rhetoric, liberté, égalité, fraternité, and the colonial practices. And it's been easier for France to do than the United States of America because for a long time in its history, the colonial oppression was invisible. It was in the colonies. It was far from sight. And now it's coming back and it's visible because of immigration, because of globalization um, and because of technology in the world we're around today. So we're, we're, it's really becoming intenable. And Camus serves almost as camouflage for this. Even he himself was torn by it. And that's one of the many paradoxes. Mm. So, so Oliver, what is it about us in the West where we have a difficult time admitting the paradoxes and the contradictions that exist in us all. It just strikes me. And I'm wondering, so what can we learn? What can we learn from the fact that you're highlighting these contradictions and these paradoxes that existed within Camus himself? I mean, what can that teach us? And here, I think this is something that, uh, you know, I, again, I'm reminded of, of, of other people like Abraham Lincoln himself. And you and I have discussed this, Marcus and I have discussed, discussed it, who we like to think historically of them as being absolute consistent. In fact, we have a tendency to make of these people, these historical figures, um, to remake them in an image that they probably wouldn't recognize themselves if they actually if they actually came back and they saw these images. And so I think of, um, and I've often quoted uh, a, 
uh, a statement by W.E.B. Du Bois about uh, about Lincoln and his contradictions. And he ends that quote by saying that um, that he sees this as as what made him human, that he was a big, inconsistent, brave man and was willing to be inconsistent. So I'm wondering what what can we learn from uh, from addressing and acknowledging that these contradictions and these paradoxes actually actually exist in all of us as human beings? I think the first thing that is useful to be able to actually demythify these figures like Lincoln, like Camus, and I was going to mention Lyndon Johnson, is to really look at history, um, because that serves to give the context. And then to go back to what Marcus said, to also look at modernity and to figure to, to see that nations were created out of modernity um, and for economic and political reasons, uh, that the very notion of nation is in opposition to monarchy and that there are, it needs, we need secular saints, right? We need idealized figures. Um, and I was going to mention, yes, Lyndon Johnson, if you read Carroll's excellent biography, you find out that Lyndon Johnson was, was not just a figure who said we shall overcome, but who blocked civil rights legislation in the Senate for decades mm. or for certainly many years. And that there's in fact a systemic motivation um, behind uh, oppressive rules and laws and sometimes a systemic motivation behind rules and laws that free people from oppression. Mm. And that's something also that's interesting to, to, to look at. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking also um, of Oliver and Darren that it it that this the, the the trouble with 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 being willing to openly wrestle with with contradictions um uh that that show up right um in prominent Euro Western figures like Camus like Abraham like Abraham Lincoln as Darren was mentioning earlier it seems to me is that is that once you do that. Um, you're now messing with uh, the process of sort of myth building with respect to, you know, this idea of Euro-Western exceptionalism, right? This idea that um, that the Western world is a kind of exemplar uh, that, that the rest of the world should look up to, right? And emulate um, and seek out for, for guidance, uh, et cetera. Uh, but this sort of hard, hard, hard work of dealing with internal contradictions, it seems to me, uh, chips away and also exposes, I think, the sort of mythic foundation, um, the, the mythic foundations of Euro-Western identity. So I think that's another issue uh, uh, at play here. But, but Oliver, uh, you yourself uh, are a Frenchman, right? You, uh, you grew up um, in France. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear, just on a more basic level, what, what was that experience like? Um, did you experience race uh, uh, as 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 a factor um, um, in France before the show? You and I were talking briefly about the fact, and I'm still flabbergasted by this, that France um, uh, does not allow statistics on race um, to be compiled. I'm, I'm still sort of sort of flabbergasted by this. Anyway, um, curious to hear from you, Oliver, about what your experience was like growing up in in, in France, and did you? Did you experience race? Was race a part of your of your uh, experience? Well, l let me preface this by saying that, of course, my comments in terms of the experience of, of race is the, from the experience from the perspective of a of a white middle class Parisian, um, 
And, and, and that's important to note. On the other hand, of course, I'm also a descendant of, of German and Jewish refugees, some of whom died uh, with the complicity of the French state at the end of World War II. And so my reverence for the French state and the myth of France as a land of universalism, enlightenment, was very limited from the get-go. Mm. So um, that's that needs to be said. Um, and I'll, I'll say this, you know, race, when I grew up in school, because the schooling was based on district, there was no busing. It was very, very white. And in terms of education, I mean, it was extremely problematic. It was very, very few mentions of, um, of colonialism outside of um, sort of complementary, complementary comments or, and no mentions of any massacres or anything like that. And so the, on the one hand, race is absent from the educational curriculum. I'm talking about, you know, primary, middle, high school. It's completely absent. But then when you go to the streets of Paris, the French society is blind to everything but color. And if you are of Algerian descent, of Maghrebi descent, if you're black, you're going to get stopped by the police if you're under 30 years old. Um, so, and so one sees that. And then the news is, uh, there's a constant stream of young Arab and young African men being killed by the police. Uh, and the big emblematic moment in my life and in the life of a generation of French women and men um, was in 1986, there was a big demonstration against the privatization of the, the French university system. And this demonstration, you know, there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the streets of Paris. And one night, the police uh, attacked a group of people and killed a young man of Algerian descent. And that was a huge moment uh, that led to a huge outcry on the part of, of French youth, uh, but not at all atypical. Um, so it's a society that that is in a sort of a state-funded and sponsored delusion that race doesn't matter. Um, and let me just end with one quick anecdote. When you refer to a black person in French, there is an aversion to say the word noir. And French kids in the 80s and 90s would say the word black. So they, you know, in, in, in this sort of trying to sort of dilute it. Um, and so it's even in the way that people speak to one another, uh, there's a negation of race. So, so, so Oliver, you've brought up a point here, um, well, a term, and, and let's just kind of dig into it a little bit. Can you explain to, to us and our listeners a little bit more this concept of universalism in France? What is that? And because it is a, it's a fundamental tenet of, of, uh, of, of what it means to be French, right? Can you ex just explain for us a little bit what this term means? Absolutely. Well, we have to go back a little bit. Um, I think the, the notion of universalism really grows out of, of the Enlightenment. And it is a, a concept, an idea that's meant to really challenge monarchies and societies that are built on um, a sort of super essentialism, right? You're born in a specific family. So universalism uh, becomes this notion, and it's very linked with modernity and capitalism, where, you know, you are what you do, how much work you, you perform, and so on, and we're all created equal. This is to create, essentially, a nation where people are citizens, not subjects, uh, and this is idea of complete equality. 
But of course, as we know, it's also used often as a as a mask and as a as a way to legitimate, in fact, imperialism. And in fact, behind universalism, that's sort of it's sort of the rhetoric um, behind the revolution of 1789, which in many ways was a bourgeois revolution. And when you look at the Declaration of the Man and the Citizen, La Déclaration de l'Homme et du Citoyen in 1789, the very first article is about protecting property. Men of African descent are, are slaves in the French system. And so they're considered property. So this de universalist declaration does not emancipate them. Because ultimately, the value of bourgeois universalism is commerce, by any means necessary. And, and so that universalism confronts itself with another universalism, which is a universalism that takes the rhetoric, let's say, at face value. And there were societies of white bourgeois Frenchmen, Société des Amis des Noirs, who were for the abolition of slavery. They went over in 1794, but they don't really... That's not why slavery was abolished in France in 1794. It was because there were uh, there were riots, there were uprisings in Saint-Domingue, which later becomes Haiti, and they had to keep the peace and so they had to abolish slavery. So really it's pressure from the colonies, from the slaves who are fighting and who have forced the revolution to keep up with their rhetoric. And therein lies the interest of universalism and the universal universalist rhetoric, is that even though it may not have been originally sincere, it gets taken up by people in what becomes Haiti, and later by Ho Chi Minh, uh, and they take them at face value, and they say, all right, we're going to take your words and put you in front of your contradictions. Um, so universalism is sort of a double-edged sword. You could say there are two. There's one that's about rebellion against injustice of all people. And it starts with the history of humanity in Carthage, the rebellion of the slaves and the mercenaries from, and, you know, going to Spartacus and then Haiti, uh, and maybe all the way to BLM. And then other universalism, the state-sponsored official universalism, that is an excuse for colonialism and imperialism, and as an excuse for racism. Um, so, so perhaps that's the best way to look at it. But the way it's taught, It's certainly a way to try to negate history and to, the history on, as practiced on the ground and to negate race. Yeah, this is interesting. And I'm, there's a part of me that wonders, and we don't, we don't have to address this now, but there's a part of me that wonders if um, prominent uh, Black intellectuals from the U.S., Zora Neale Hurston, James Baldwin, who spent time working creatively, intellectually in places like Paris, Uh, I wonder if, if, if their decision to go to Paris for these reasons was somehow influenced by this idea that, oh, well, you know, um, France embraces this idea of, of, of universalism, of universal uh, human rights. Uh, my race is less of an issue, will be, will be less of an issue if I go there. Um, I'll be treated humanely. I mean, I wonder if that influenced uh, the decision of these thinkers to, to go there. But anyway, um, do, do you think, Oliver, that uh, that's, that France has in any way realized this idea of universalism, not necessarily the, 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 the brand that is, that is more closely tied to colonialism, but the brand that you might associate with, um, um, you know, for example, the, the, the anti-racist movement right now in Paris um, or, or BLM, um, or does this just kind of remain a kind of mythological pipe dream that really 
um, ha has never been tangibly realized anywhere in the country. And, I, and I'm wondering as well, Oliver, as you as you respond to Marcus's question, and brother, I'm I'm wondering, can it be reached? You know, can we reach mm. this ideal? Is it possible? How should we continue to kind of wrestle with this idea of universalism? And I can't help but think of how it it might connect Oliver with uh, even our own declaration of independence and this idea of all men created equal, seen as something of a universal idea as well. But please respond. Well, let's see. We've got a lot of things here. What did you want to respond about? Um, Paris being a haven for African-American intellectuals, because I think that's a very good point. Um, for example, um, Sartre mentions the fact, and he, he had Richard Wright as a very good friend, Baldwin was in Paris, Chester Himes, but it was much easier at that time, the immediate post-World War II, to be tolerant um, of, 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 of Black men, for example, and women in that Paris, because um, all the uh, people who were genuinely oppressed were in the colonies. So there was sort of this artificial space. And also uh, France liked to give itself um, the moral high ground with respect to the United States of America, but never criticized their own practices. So even at that time, there were segregated hospitals for Algerians, for Muslims uh, in France, in the metropole. So this was a, a, a lot of sort of diplomacy in a way to criticize the United States um, in, in Paris was a sort of an outlier compared to what was going on in the whole French empire. Um, so moving on from that, uh, with respect to universalism and, and is it possible? Well, you know, one, one, one way to think about it, of course, is, is that every struggle against racism, against brutality, against violence, um, against these, this, this rewriting of history is in fact, um, a battle for universalism, right? Uh, Fanon talks about this desire ultimately to join humanity as a collective. And, and so, but you can only go get to universalism if you fight racism, if you fight colonialism, and if you fight historical, what I would call negationism, right? The negation of the historical past. Now, as far as French universalism goes today, uh, French universalism is really the French presence all over the world in its former colonies. And, and that is extremely problematic. It is the French flag flying in Guyana, a small enclave of land off of Latin America. It's the French flag flying in Guadeloupe, in Martinique, but also in the Pacific Ocean, in Tahiti, in New Caledonia. This is a universalism, but it's also the remnant of the colonial empire. Um, it's also French interests all over Western, um, mostly Western Africa and in, in the former colonies. It's the fact that the currencies of these country, it's called the eco, is, you know, for all intents and purposes, controlled by the French bank and indexed to the euro. So we have a new form of oppression, which is sort of a neo-colonialism, where the colonial task has been subcontracted to local elites and to the benefit of French corporation. In a way, that is French uni universalism today. In another way, we have intellectuals, we have, uh, we have great figures from Martinique, from Guadeloupe, and from Africa who resonate because they write in French and they, they talk to um, a counterculture, a resistance to this. 
but as far as a perfect universalism, can we get there or not? I, 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 I would defer to, to the both of you. Well, you're listening to the Watterson Harvest Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back after a short break. Stay with us. You're listening to the Waterson Harvest Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're discussing the global impact of the Black Lives Matter movement, woke culture, and racial justice protests in the United States. Our guest is Dr. Oliver Glogue, an associate professor of French and Francophone studies at UNC Asheville. And Oliver, it's just really good to have you here. And thank you all in the audience for staying with us. Well, you know, uh, Oliver, you just made a statement that really stands out to me uh, that really just caught my attention, Um, and especially as a historian. um, You said the negation, the negation of the historical past. And it seems like, you know, that's something that we're really good at, of just ignoring what the historical past has been. So is that how we can look at France's uh, response to social justice movements that are taking place? Uh, globally now. Um, Are you surprised by how French politicians and French intellectuals, it seems from both the the left and the right, are responding to to social justice movements uh, globally? Yeah. And and just to add to Darren's question, Oliver, uh, just quickly, um, if also, if you would, um, I'm curious to hear from you, where, where does this negational power come from, right? What what is it exactly that 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 France is doing that accomplishes this 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 historical negation, uh, right? Because it, it seems to me that um, that you know it, it, it's one thing to sort of point to or name negation as a kind of uh, nationalistic strategy that France is engaged in right now. Uh, and, and I think it's another kind of thing, a kind of uh, helpful thing to, to think about how exactly this, this, you know, these forms of historical negation um, are accomplished. So, Oliver, please. Well, um, this is the, this falsification is the motto of one of the great French thinkers of the 19th century, Ernest Renan, who said that a nation was built on denial. In fact, he insisted that a nation was built on, on falsification of the historical record. And this is sort of gospel for the heads of state. Um, this denial, there are so many examples of it. And going back, because it does explain uh, the reaction uh, and, and the force of, of the French reaction to, to, to the murder of George Floyd. But the, the French have negated... The concrete examples are, for example, Aimé Césaire, who is a a thinker, a poet, a playwright, a huge figure in French anti-colonialism, who was born in Martinique, who died about 15 years ago. He wrote a very famous text called The Discourse on Colonialism. He wrote it in the 50s. It was withdrawn from 
um, the National Baccalaureate Examination sponsored by the state in the early 2000s by the Ministry of Culture. You can no longer study this text. It is no longer an official text. It has been withdrawn. It has been effectively banned. Even though you can buy it in bookstores, you cannot study it in schools. So that would be exhibit 464 um, if, if I were to be facetious. But there is a, a chronic unwillingness to to look at this past. And so Macron's interventions, the article you mentioned, Darren, speaks to that uh, directly. And what's interesting is that there's this notion that these anti-colonial, quote-unquote, woke thinkers are all American. Many of them were French. Fanon was from Martinique in France. Césaire was from Martinique in France. So, so this is not something that's coming from America. But the way the French state um, deals with it is by negating it, minimizing it, um, and, and in response to the murder of George Floyd, there was a law passed, no, not a law passed, but a bill proposed, I don't think it passed, it made it into law, to ban the filming of police. Because they, 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 so this is, this is, if you'd like, this is really the ostrich policy, right? You ban the filming of police by demonstrators. Now, all this being said, there are people who are fighting this culture of state-sponsored denial. There's a historian, uh, Françoise Vergès, who wrote, writes extraordinarily important books on French colonial denial. But there is also a minister in 2001 from Guadeloupe. She passed a law, she successfully wrote a law and it passed into law on saying that, stating that um, the slave trade was a crime against humanity. Mm-hmm. And although it's largely symbolic, um, there are penalties associated with um, making the apology for slavery, and it's a first step. Uh, so there are people who, within French academe, within the French government, some in, in some sections of it, are fighting for that recognition. But they are by far the minority. This is this is not part of the common discourse. But there are people out there in France who are fighting this um, this this propensity to negate. Yeah. Yeah, and your missus, I, you know, I, the 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 scholar you meant, uh, you mentioned Oliver, who um, writes about slavery as a crime against humanity, is 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 striking to me when you consider, for example, that um, and I'm thinking also about um, our recent shows on reparations. When you consider the fact that um, uh, uh, after the successful Haitian Revolution, right, what does France demand of Haiti? <laughs> Reparations, right? And so Haiti ends up paying like something somewhere around $21 billion in reparations to France for 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 uh, liberating uh, right themselves. So but anyway, um I've I'm also uh, curious to hear from you, Oliver. So I, it seems to me that um uh, and I think we, we kind of see this in the anti-racism movement in France. It seems to me that uh, that France seems to be, you know, despite all of these policies, um uh, a diverse country, um, and this seems to be the case increasingly so. So um, I'm I'm wondering uh, uh, whether this is, this is actually the case uh, from your perspective as as a Frenchman, and what this might bode, right? What this might signal for for France's future, right? So you have so so if in fact we do have this increasingly diverse European country, right? This 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 that this is this increasingly diverse European nation. Um, with these policies that essentially make it e- make it very easy to essentially ignore that diversity, right? You can't you can't talk about it statistically. <laughs> you can't you know study it numerically. Um, what does that mean 
in your opinion. Um, yeah. Oliver. yeah. And Oliver, before you answer that, Marcus's question becomes even more important for me because I was thinking the same thing based on a comment that you made earlier, because if I if I read your comment, or if I was hearing it correctly, that France has been able to avoid some of these real hard conversations around race because it was always something that was in some other place in the colonies. But it seems now that the country is confronted with it in, in a very different way, it's right there in your face. And is it the, the increasing diversity of, of France that is driving this? I think it is. And I think this is, this, this is a crucial development. And this demographic change, which is largely due to immigration, but we can't understand immigration, of course, without looking to history. So when France goes to, to Algeria or to Gabon, and invades it, occupies it, forces people to learn French as a language, makes that economy, for all intents and purposes, export only. When you grow up as a young woman or as a young man, the place to go, of course, is the place where the wealth of that country has gone to, which is France, and it's the language you speak. And so immigration is a consequence, a logical consequence of imperialism. And um, so here we have this, this new generation of, of and, and France also, while it was rebuilding during World War II, called people from its colonies to help rebuild France that was well nigh destroyed by World War II. So there's also that paradox. And so we do have a very different makeup in France, which, is, which should be a crucial opportunity. You know, uh, Islam is the second religion in France, but do you, you know, Arabic is not taught in, um, in French schools by and large. Uh, although, of course, you know, you could, you, you know, there's not a direct correlation between Islam and speaking Arabic, but, but in the French context, there usually is. And I think that ultimately this demographic pressure is going to change. And we see already members of government who are more diverse. There's a fascinating political figure, Daniel Obono, who comes from Gabon, who was born in Gabon, who does extraordinarily important work. And she's a black woman. And the French establishment has a very hard time dealing with her. And she's the constant uh, target of racist attacks, racist comments, and she fights back and, and she is in the French parliament. So this is a battle, but I think you're, you're both right. This is a new France that's coming. A new France with uh, different cultures, with um, you know, different histories. And I think ultimately um, we, should, we should leave pessimism for better times and we should hope that that France can really open itself up uh, and look at its history by looking at its, at its people, at all its people. Well, Oliver, I really appreciate that. And I, just the whole conversation, we could continue this. There's never enough time. But one of the things I'd like to ask you as we as we get ready to end here, uh, this, this show, and we definitely have to have you back to continue this conversation. But I wonder, uh, as France becomes uh, more diverse, um, and this concept of universalism, could we possibly see one day, do you believe that we could possibly see one day a person of color as president of France? That's a very good question because, um, because you don't have persons of color who are heading political parties. But again, the, the example of Daniela Bono, I think, is, is important because she's a, a part of a new generation. Could we? Um, I don't know. That's that's a that's a difficult answer. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, America could be, in this instance, a, more of a progressive country. 
um, than than America. Remember, we were talking about the old, you know, this this new this immigration. There are political parties who run against it. And there's an undercurrent of xenophobia in French politics that runs the gamut. It transcends the left and the right. So every president of the Fifth Republic has made their racist statement to kowtow to a, a strong majority of the white French population. And we should never forget that. From Mitterrand, who created internment camps for immigrants, to Jacques Chirac, who complained about the smells in Arab neighborhoods, I mean, every single president has done, has made a comment that's been sort of complicated um, on, with that respect. So, so um, a black president, you know, um, we'll see. Well, Oliver, again, Marcus and I want to thank you for joining us today. That That's an interesting, speculative way to kind of end this show. Marcus, we didn't leave much time for you and I to kind of uh, to kind of wrap up the show with uh, any commentary from the ideas that have emerged from the conversation with Oliver. But we're definitely going to come back to this. And Oliver, we'd love to commit you right now to coming back and continuing <laughs> this conversation with us. <laughs> I would very much love to do so. Uh, I'm always, always enjoy speaking with you. All right. Thank you. Well, thank you, Oliver, again. Thank you for being here. And as we get ready to close this program out, we'll do it as we always do to remind you that the Waters and Harvest Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, in partnership with the Institute for the Promotion of Human Understanding. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps, and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Also, you can follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter as you are doing, or you can write us at whshow at bpr.org. Take care. Take care.